Well, as we dig in this morning, I thought I'd start out with this. I saw this on social media some time back, and I've been saving it. Look at this with me, if you will. It talks about atheism. It says, atheism, the belief that there was nothing, and nothing happened to nothing, and then nothing magically exploded for no reason, creating everything, and then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs. Makes perfect sense, right? Very easy to laugh at them. Uh, but turnabout's fair play, so how about this next one? Christianity. The belief that some cosmic Jewish zombie can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him that you accept him as your master. So he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. Makes perfect sense. You ought to be laughing because what you people believe is freaky. Right? Like what you people believe is crazy. That is absolutely insane. Like certifiable. You can be committed for that. Unless, unless it's true. What we believe is absolutely crazy unless it's true. Now, we're going to be talking about the resurrection. Last week, we talked about the crucifixion. And I told you this week would be the resurrection. And here's mainly what we're going to talk about today. That the resurrection is crazy, but true. Not only for Jesus, but also for you. Now, we're going to be starting out in Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Jesus has been crucified. His dead body is hanging on a cross. And the next question is, what do you do with the body? What do you do? So here we are. Luke 23, verse 50 through 56. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid, it, laid him in a tomb cut into stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second. We have, uh, that's the end of chapter 23. We're about to roll into, we have 12 more verses in chapter 24 that we're going to get to in a moment. But I want to pause because I want to do a little bit of a sidebar and ask a question. Is Christianity anti-Semitic? Is Christianity anti-Jewish? After all, throughout Christian history, there have been unfortunate moments when Christians have referred to Jews as Christ killers. Christ killers. Remember, Luke is a Gentile. Luke is the only Gentile contributor to the New Testament. He's writing a gospel with his intent, a primarily Gentile audience. And yet, in the midst of it, it might have been lost on your Gentile ears, but that 
couple paragraphs we just read, it is dripping with references to Judaism. Luke is honoring our Jewish roots in this passage. You see things like, it says, Joseph came from the Jewish town of Arimathea. It points out that he is Jew. He's not just a Jew. He's on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. He's like a Jew of Jews, a good and righteous man who is looking for the kingdom. That means he was looking for the Jewish Messiah. It's likely that he believed in Jesus as that Messiah. That's why he didn't consent to their decision to have Jesus killed. Joseph is very, very Jewish. And then it talks about the women. The women are pictured here as very devout, very pious Jews as they obey the Sabbath regulations. That means you can do no work on the Sabbath. Okay, so for the Jews, the Sabbath is Saturday, okay? Could do no work. And by the way, carrying a dead body and preparing spices and ointments and wrapping the dead body and then covering the dead body with those, that's all work. Can't do it on the Sabbath on Saturday. So they tried to get done as much as they could on Friday. Friday is the day of preparation. You're preparing for the Sabbath when you can't do work. So you get your work done on Friday. So they do as much as they can. They don't get it all done. They have to say time out, hit pause, and then come, and then Saturday's Sabbath, and then they'll come back Sunday morning, and that's where they will come to the tomb of Christ. They are cast here as very, very Jewish. After all, our Lord, Jesus, is the Jewish Messiah. And when you open your Bible, the first two-thirds of it is the Old Testament. Those are the Jewish scriptures. It's incredibly, incredibly Jewish. We have no grounds on which to be anti-Semitic. We, are inherit, we, we inherit from the Jews. And so uh, I remember when I was doing college ministry at Kent State, I build a relationship with the leader of Hillel. Hillel is like the Jewish ministry on most campuses. And she and I were having coffee together at, uh, it was Susan's a coffee shop. Some of you might remember that. Now it's Five Guys. You get burgers now. So. Um, but we were having coffee there, and it, Passover was coming up. Easter was coming up. And she asked me, Rick, do you believe that the Jews killed Jesus? And I'll tell you what I told her. I said, in a sense, yes. The Jews definitely wanted him killed, definitely initiated those proceedings. The, the Jews are guilty, sure. But you remember Pastor Jared's sermon. I didn't tell her that, but I'll tell you that. Right? So, so you remember Pastor Jared's sermon where he said that uh, the, the Jews didn't kill, the Romans are the ones. You know what Romans are? Gentiles. Who executed Jesus? Gentiles. <laughs> Non-Jews. But there's an even better answer, and, and I'll get at it this way with you guys right now by referring to the lyrics of a great song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And here's what that song says. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. You want to know who the Christ killer is? Me. And you. 
We did it. It was our sin that held him there. We don't blame the Jews for that. It was our sin. And we're a mess. And Jews and Gentiles alike, like some Jews come to faith in Jesus and some Jews don't. Some Gentiles come to faith in Jesus and some Gentiles don't. And it is very, very wrong to refer to Jews as Christ killers. We are the Christ killers. We put them there. So hopefully having tied off uh, anti-Semitism for you because this passage has done that. Let's continue on now. Now we go into chapter 24. Chapter 24 is the last chapter in Luke. We won't finish it today, but we're into that chapter at least. But here it is. First 12 verses. Say this. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Okay, the rest, there was about 120 followers of Christ at that point gathered with them. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The resurrection is crazy, but true. And not only for Jesus, but also for you. That's what I want to look back through from that passage it is crazy, but true. Let's, let's talk about the crazy side of it. It said the women were perplexed. Why were they perplexed? Because they followed on Friday Joseph of Arimathea, and they saw where he laid the body of Jesus, and they saw the stone rolled over that, that tomb. And so when they showed up that Sunday morning, remember what they brought with them? Spices and ointment, you know what that's for? That's to cover a dead body. What were they expecting to find? A dead body. Not an empty tomb. You know why they expected that? Because resurrection's crazy. That doesn't happen. They don't expect that. That's insane. The Jews do believe in a resurrection, but it is a final resurrection at the end of all time for the righteous altogether. No Jew would ever believe in a singular resurrection in the middle of time. And, and not the Messiah. That's not their view of how it was going to go down with the Messiah. For a Jew to think that a resurrection like that would happen, that's crazy. And the apostles knew it. Do you know who the first skeptics of the resurrection were? Did you see it? It was 
Let me read it to you, verses 10 and 11. The women told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The apostles were the first skeptics. You know why? Because resurrection's crazy. That doesn't happen. Listen, if you and I are hanging out in the atrium this morning, and my wife walks in the atrium, and you say, hey, Rick, look, there's Shannon. And I go, yeah, isn't it cool? Last night she died. You'd say, dude, you're nuts. You call 911 like something's wrong because resurrection's crazy. What do you people believe is crazy? But it's true. But it's true. And this passage is dripping with evidence about the resurrection. Notice the women watched the, which tomb Joseph laid him in. So what if they went to the wrong tomb? It wasn't the wrong, like they went to some empty tomb and thought he was risen, but it was the wrong tomb. No, they watched him and it was in there. It's in history. They knew which tomb. By the way, these tombs are expensive. So oftentimes a family would have a tomb and it's not just one person. Like there would be several relatives dead bodies decomposing in there until they get to bones. Then they put the bones in a box. It's a Jewish thing. Don't worry about it. But, but the point is that, that what, they would, what, what they would do is they would have several in there. So what if they got the right tomb and they went in, but they looked on the wrong shelf and they thought Jesus was risen, but his body's over there. No, no. Did you catch? It was a new tomb. No other body would have been in there. That just... It seals the deal on that. And, and so what they find is they find an empty tomb. Now, here's what that would have looked like from the inside. This is a tomb like that, and you see where a body would have been laid over on a shelf and let to decompose there. And uh, It's carved out of the rock, it said. From the outside, it would look like this. And this is potentially uh, the, the tomb of Jesus. And you see how the stone would be rolled across the front of it in a little groove there. Big heavy stone, you'd need levers to move it. So the question is, is that tomb Jesus' tomb? And the answer is we have no idea. We, we really do not know, which is really wild, because it was customary in Judaism that when a holy man or a prophet died, they would venerate his tomb. They would turn his tomb into a shrine. You understand, in Christianity, it's just not a thing that we make a pilgrimage to the tomb of Jesus. That's why we don't even know which tomb it is. Why? Because we just don't care. Because the tomb is empty. He is risen. He is not there. There's nothing valuable in the tomb. What we want is Jesus, not an empty cave. And so there's no value in it. Why do you look for the living among the dead? It was an empty tomb. And we don't even know which one was Jesus. That's evidence. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Of course, that was the statement from the angels. So you also have the witnesses of the angels them, themselves. Well, it doesn't say angels in Luke. What it says is two guys in dazzling clothes. Like, whoa, loud outfit, man. Turn it down, right? Like, your, your dad ever come out dressed in a way? You're like, go back and try again. Right? <laughs> no, just no, just no, right? So these guys are wearing loud outfits, but it's not just that they're loud outfits. I mean, it says that they are frightened and they put their heads down. These are angels. We know that from other accounts. Ah, but time out. Speaking of the other gospel accounts, is there a contradiction here? Uh, Matthew says there's one angel. Luke says there's two. Now, if this is supposed to be historic evidence, the accounts can't contradict because then we go, this is maybe not true. So was there one or two, and it, did the Bible get it wrong? Let me ask you a question. 
who preaches at Redemption Chapel? Rick McKee, right? So if you told somebody, hey, Rick McKee preaches at Redemption Chapel, is that true? Yeah. What if you told somebody else that Rick McKee and Jared Williams preach at Redemption Chapel, is that true? Yeah. In one case, you're just focusing on, on me because I preach most of the time. In the other case, you tell them Rick and Jared, right? And that's all you have. See, in Matthew's account, he focuses probably on the angel that actually did the speaking. There were two there, but he just said, yeah, there was an angel there that said this. Now, if Matthew said there was one and only one angel, we got a problem. If you say Rick and only Rick preaches that redemption, we got a problem. You lied. But Matthew doesn't do that. So there's no contradiction. That is, <laughs> these are how Bible contradictions are so damning to us. They're just not. They're just not. So what you have then is the testimony of these two angels. And then you have the testimony of the women. But we got a problem. You can't believe women. That's basically in the passage. Don't kill the messenger, okay? Um, but like in that, in that society back then, in that society back then, notice the women came forward and they thought it was an idle tale. You know, women, it's just an idle tale. That's what's going on. Because in that culture, in that society, in that day, they did not respect the testimony of women. So now the early church had a problem. Because they know it's crazy, but they know it's true. So now we want to help people understand that that which is crazy is actually true, and we got to base it on the testimony of women. Do you understand how inconvenient that was for the beginning of our faith? And yet Luke writes it in. Why? Well, one, remember, Jesus is all about the marginalized, the outcast, the outsider, those who will get pushed aside. He says, no, those women are my disciples, and their word counts. But as well, we just couldn't write it out, even though it was inconvenient. We couldn't edit that part out because it's history and it was well known and people knew that. And the point is that this is not legend and this is not myth and this is not fable. If this was legend, we would have never made the women the first witnesses. Never. But it's history. And so it went in that way. It went in that way. The point is this is crazy, but it's true it's true. There's a uh, British New Testament scholar. Now, he's British, so you know he's smart. If he's not smart, he at least sounds smart, right? And, and his name is B.F. Westcott, and he said this. He said, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Nothing but the antecedent assumption that it must be false could have suggested the idea of the deficiency in the proof of it. Would you like me to translate that last line? Okay. I see somebody saying yes, please, please. Okay. What he's saying is this, that, that there's so much historic evidence that, that of course you would believe it unless, unless you bring into the discussion an antecedent assumption. You've got a presumption that there can be no resurrection. And if you're already resolved before you even look at the evidence, that's why you would dismiss the proof. But if you don't have that and you just look at the evidence, it's clear, it's crazy, but it's true. It's not, it's not true because we wanted it. It's not true because we felt it. It's true because it happened in history. I told you last week that if the cross didn't happen, nothing matters. But listen, if the resurrection didn't happen, the cross doesn't matter. Jesus was just a kook. 
And, and he didn't prove it. And he, he got killed. And now we know he was just, he was false. Oh, wait a minute, he rose? But time out. I guess he's not a kook, is he? And so, because of the resurrection, we know the cross is true. The cross is the payment for our sins. The resurrection is the receipt. It is the proof of the payment that we know it's actually true. So history is changed not by a body of teaching. History is changed by the body of Jesus. And that body rose from death, actually, truthfully. And this changes everything. Now, now we care about Jesus' teaching. If Jesus didn't rise, who cares what he said? Wait a minute, though. If Jesus rose from the dead, yeah, you got my attention, Jesus. What do you want to say, Lord? And if Jesus rose, you give him your life. If Jesus didn't rise, you give him nothing. Walk away. Walk away. This changes everything. And so Luke, in, in chapter 24, verse 3, referred to him as Lord Jesus. Do you know what it would take for, for the Jews to believe that a man was the Lord? A resurrection. And that's exactly what happened. See, the resurrection is crazy, but true. But remember the next part. Not only for Jesus, but also for you. So we sang, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. You know that song is just about history? That song just goes through the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. It talks about events that happened in history. And it crafts them. It's so beautifully crafted in theologically depthy, but lyrically beautiful words. Great poetry in that song. And it ends with this. It says, Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected. As we will be when he comes. You see, the resurrection is not just for Jesus. It's also for you. He's the one that turns graves into gardens. He's the only one who can. It's for us as well. And so what I want to finish with is uh, I want to talk about how the resurrection applies to our lives by looking at four things that I see in the text. And the first one is this. Stop seeking life among dead things. If you want a resurrected life, stop seeking life among dead things. It's based on what the angels said, right? Why, do you, why are you seeking the living among the dead? And that phrase has always haunted me. It's like hovers right there because it's not only about what happened outside a tomb 2,000 years ago, but it's about what you and I do every day. We're seeking life in dead things all the time. Having put our faith in Jesus Christ, we enter not into a dead religion. We enter into a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Romans chapter 6 says that having been placed in Christ, not only does his crucifixion count for us, but it says that his resurrection counts for us, and therefore we are raised to newness of life. Not just Jesus. We are raised to newness of life not only for Jesus, but also for you. 
So what we need to do is we need to stop living in fear. A resurrected life doesn't live in fear. We fear, we fear all kinds of, we fear the government, politicians, political parties, agendas, other countries, people, groups, diseases, death. We fear all kinds of stuff. Why? Because we're putting our hope, we're putting our trust in dead things. We're looking for life in dead things. And then when those things get threatened, we get all fussy. We call it fear. Why do we look for life among the dead? And we also do it with sin. We go to sin, whether it's sexual sin or addiction or whatever. I mean, all of us deal with, with stuff. And what we're doing in that moment is we're saying, we know this is a dead thing, but I think there might be life in it. And so I'll go look, I'll look for life in dead stuff. It's like we're going down the road and there's roadkill and we pull the car over and we get out a fork and knife and thinking, maybe, maybe this is a good meal. We're looking for life in dead stuff. It's gross. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, granted, we're all very imperfect. We're all a mess. No doubt. We're all a mess. But there ought to be evidence of resurrected life in us. If we actually put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside us, and we ought to have some resurrected life evidence in our lives. And if not, then it's probable that we're just involved in the religion of Christianity, not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because religion never leads to resurrection. But a relationship with Jesus leads to resurrection every time. So if, if we come to Christ, then what does that resurrected life start to look like? What's well, communion with God all day long? Like, you know how like middle schoolers text? Like all day long? That ought to be us and Jesus. Like all day long, just talking with him. That's resurrected life. The Holy Spirit inside of us, uh, empowering us and filling us. It ought to explode in worship. We ought to lay down our lives, love our Christian brothers and sisters. We ought to serve. We ought to give. We ought to go tell the world about him. Spirit-filled life, resurrected life. And if you experience that, what you'll find is you're coming alive for the first time in your life. That's called resurrection. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean religion and rules and rituals and routines. It's a relationship with Christ that leads to resurrection. That's what it's all about. And it's not just for Jesus, but also for you. All right? So that's the first thing. Now, the second one is take God at his word. And this one's a little bit shorter. But remember how the angel said, remember how he told you. So the the women come to the grave and they're perplexed because like, where's Jesus? And they're like, women, he told you over and over. If the guys were there, they would say, dudes, did you not listen? Like, you were in class with Jesus for three years. And he told you at least three times in Luke, twice in chapter 9, once in chapter 18, he told you he was going to rise from the dead. Were you not listening? Are you so thick-skulled? Did you not get that? How did you miss that? And if we, if we are resurrected people, then we ought to take God at his word. Whether we believe it or not, God will do what God said God will do every time. Whether we believe it or not, God will do what God said God will do every time. And as resurrected people, we ought to take him at his word. And then thirdly, 
Use your position and your resources to serve the kingdom. How did I get there? Joseph of Arimathea. So crucified bodies, what usually happened to them is the soldiers would take them down and they would be thrown in a ditch and allowed for the wild beasts to just rip them apart and eat them. It's a further amount of humiliation to this one we want to punish and execute and humiliate. We hate them, we don't like that, so we want that to happen to them. So to get permission, like to to bury a body like in a real burial, you had to get permission from the government to do that. But who would have that standing to be able to go to Pilate? So here's Joseph of Arimathea. He is on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, which means he has position of influence to be able to do that. But time out, there's a problem. That means he also has position at risk. Because Jesus was crucified. Remember, here's the king of the Jews. He's an insurrectionist. And so if I come forward and say, hey, can I have his body? I'm saying I'm with him, which means I might be an insurrectionist. I'm under suspicion. Maybe I should be crucified too. So when Joseph comes forward to Pilate and asks for the body, he's risking. But he's saying, I think he's the Messiah and he's worth it. He's worth it. So he uses his position. He uses not only his position, but his resources. Only wealthy people had tombs like that. In fact, it was prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 9, that the Messiah would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. And so here he is using his material resources to further the mission of Christ. And that's true for us as we live a resurrected life. You understand that that when you enter into Christ, you enter into his crucifixion, which means you die to your little life but you are raised to the big, grand life of the kingdom. You die to your little fiefdom, but you are raised to care about the incredible, grand, huge kingdom of God. And so we end up with, as resurrected people, we end up with mission and purpose like we never had before. Before we were just wandering through life like our non-Christian neighbors and just aimlessly looking for the American dream as if somehow that dead stuff will give us life. And now, now we get mission and purpose. So we use our position and our resources to advance the kingdom of God. And then fourth and last. What I saw happen in that passage, I want you to run and marvel because your story is not over yet. Where did that come in? Well, that's Peter, right? Remember Peter, he was part of the apostles who didn't really believe it, but then he ran to the tomb. Why did Peter run to the tomb? Do you remember what just happened with Peter before this? Remember he denied Jesus three times, and after that the rooster crowed, and Jesus looked him right in the eye, and Peter ran out of there weeping. He was a broken man, because he's thinking, they just killed Jesus, that's how my story ends. That's it. Story over. Unless, (laughs) unless the women come and say, hey, he's up. Jesus is alive. In that moment, Peter goes, oh my goodness. Could it really be true? Maybe my story doesn't end like that. Maybe there's another chapter. Maybe there's a resurrection, not only for Jesus, but also for me. And he's saying, could it be? So he runs to the tomb. And what I want you to hear from that is this. 
Maybe your life is a mess. Maybe you're a hot mess. But I want you to know something. Your story doesn't have to end where it is right now. Remember, it's always darkest before the dawn. And if your life is a hot mess, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, remember, He is the Lord of the resurrection. You belong to the Lord of the resurrection. And so maybe there's hope for you. Maybe your life doesn't have to end where it is right now. Maybe there's another chapter. Maybe there's a resurrection for you. Run to the empty tomb. Run to the Lord of the resurrection. And when you do, notice Peter came away marveling. He was just flabbergasted. He was marveling. And we need to do the same. Marveling is worship. And we need to marvel at the Lord of the resurrection because the resurrection is crazy, but it's true. It's crazy, but it's true. And we marvel... We absolutely marvel at the impact that it has on our lives because it's true not only for Jesus, but also for you. And now what we're going to do in a moment, I'm, uh, in a moment I'm going to pray. And then after that, we are going to stand together as children of the resurrection. What I want you to do in that moment when you stand, I want you to imagine yourself standing, coming out of your grave and standing as a risen one in the resurrection of Jesus. And then we will worship the King of Kings with what is lately my favorite worship jam. And there's a line in that song toward the end that talks about our resurrection. And I'm hoping and praying that during that time, you guys just go off and cheer and shout and whistle and clap. Because we're resurrected people. I'm hoping that God will stir something in your hearts this morning through his word that will spill out of you, that you won't be able to contain it, that it will spill out in worship. And for that, I want to pray. Bow your heads with me. Father God in heaven, I thank you very, very much for the Lord of the resurrection, Jesus himself. And we acknowledge before you right now that resurrection is absolutely insane. It's crazy, but we rejoice because it's true. And we want to ask you right now, Lord God, that you would not only stir our minds with a resurrection from 2,000 years ago, but you would stir our hearts with our resurrection in Christ right now. And that that would flood out in this room such that you would receive the praise and the glory right now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.